I've known what I don't want, but it's much more difficult to know what you actually do want. And I think it's hard when you're in that position, and it's happened a few times where you're looking for a new job and you're just feeling that you're in this vast space without any definition or guidance. But I think you just have to be patient and then something comes along that you realize feels right. As though college life in New Hampshire weren't cold enough, conservation scientist Fiona Danks found her passion for the environment unfold in the Arctic. She learned how to seek adventure, not just in the cryosphere, but also her desk job, both in academia and in the field. Find out how environment is a complex thing and worthy of a little more thought on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today we're here with Fiona Danks, and she's going to tell us about her life after the college and how, for some reason, it didn't get any warmer than winters in Hanover, um, at least not for a great part of it. So welcome, Fiona. Thank you, Leslie. Really nice to have the chance to chat. So actually, I start these conversations a lot with the same question, um, which is, who were you in college? And then as we were leaving, who did you think you would become? Um, I think in college I was very shy and liked to be in the background in most cases. I think that's still true about the background. I think I'm less shy. As to who I think I would become, despite that sort of desire to to blend in and not be noticed, I think I still always had ideas of adventure and exploration. Um, I had notions of doing a National Geographic Society internship or being a photographer for them or some mixture of photography and science and that kind of thing. So I guess I always had I had some inklings of what I might be without probably knowing very much at all. So when you were in college, though, I, I think you and I shared some geography courses. So you were both environmental studies and geography put together, right? And yeah, and environmental biology and geography, yeah, and pre med, which I then stopped at the last minute. Oh, why is that? Uh, I didn't like the environment of the of the pre med, and I compared to geography, which was even though you were going down into this basement, geography was just amazing, and the the classes and the students and the professors, and it was just an amazing learning environment, and I really didn't get that feeling from the pre med environment. It was very much a pressure cooker, and I simply the learning, I guess the learning experience and the dedication and things. And I was also really interested. I remember picking up the course catalog, as in those days, it was all on paper, trying to choose some electives. And the things I was drawn to were all the kind of bigger things, not the micro things. So not, you know, microbiology, but ecology and animal behavior and physical geography classes or even human geography classes. So I think that's why I realized yeah. And so you decided pretty early, no medical field for you. But was there a coalescing of like National Geographic, all of that? Like, when did you start thinking about what this could actually be in real life? Yeah, I would say I sort of decided early, no, no medical career. I decided not to do pre-med after I think I had half an organic chemistry course, but otherwise I did all the requirements, but ended up with geography and environmental biology and then did a master's in biology and Arctic biology or Arctic ecology. And after that, I actually still, I got a bunch of medical school applications out and vet school. So I was still toying with the idea even after my master's of, hmm, is that what I should be doing? And then I chose not to. So it was only really after the master's that I really put it behind me, I suppose. And 
had done the master's in, in basically in Arctic biology. And then that's the route that I took from there. I guess you came to Dartmouth by way of Canada, right? Yes. So you born in Zimbabwe, but most of your youth was spent in Canada? Yes. Yes. Though not in the tundra. No, not at all. Dartmouth was freezing cold for me. Dartmouth (laughs) was an absolute shock at how cold it was. And obviously, I guess I liked it. Right. I definitely liked the snowy winters because in Vancouver, you didn't really have that. You can go skiing in the mountains, but um, I actually really loved it. Not that I planned at that point at all to go somewhere cold. That was just chance, really. So uh, tell me about chance. Chance is always great. So I actually owe this to Laura Bergel-Fowler. I was doing a summer job after my third year, so after junior year, and there wasn't any, I was doing it in Canada, and because I was late because of our Dartmouth system, I wasn't available for any funding. And she said, oh, look into the Institute of Arctic Studies that's at Dartmouth. And so I did, and I got a fellowship from them to do this summer, like undergrad research. And then then Because of that, they asked me to help at this International Arctic Science Conference that was being held in Hanover in December 1995. At that meeting, I met a whole bunch, obviously, of eminent Arctic scientists, one of whom was a professor in Alaska who always needed computer help. He was near retirement age. Um, And I ended up staying in touch with him. And shortly afterwards, he offered me a funded master's. So my plan was to actually go to Europe. But then I realized I had this offer and I didn't think I could turn it down. And so off I went to Alaska, having no idea what I was getting into, but realizing that it was a good opportunity. And it did fit. It wasn't (laughs) as though it was out of left field from your studies. You had been doing this environmental biology, which had something to do. Exactly. And it was mixing biology and geography, which is what I wanted because it was using GIS, geographic information systems. So basically spatial mapping and modeling um, to look at environmental issues. So it is exactly what I wanted to keep doing. So it was the right thing, but I had never thought about going to Alaska. That's for certain. Off I I went. (laughs) And so there you were in Alaska doing this program, and yet you were still applying to med school and vet school. So you weren't exactly sure that this other thing would be a path. Yeah, I don't think I knew. I don't know how you're supposed to know. I mean, I think about that now and I mentor some students these days. And, you know, I very often say I've known what I don't want, but it's much more difficult to know what you actually do want. And I think it's it's hard when you're in that position. And it's happened a few times where you're looking for a new job and you're just feeling that you're in this vast, you know, space without any definition or guidance. But I think you just have to be patient and then something somehow kind of gel or something comes along that you realize feels right. But this can be hard hard moments, I guess. So after that, yeah, I guess it was just this period of what do I really want and what do I want to go for? And I ended up getting a job instead, which was the right choice because I wasn't ready for a PhD or more school because I don't think I knew what I wanted. And so working was actually the right thing. Absolutely. So I did that first and then everything was a bit clearer after that, I think. And then by that stage, a year and a half or two years later, I had put to rest the medical or vet school idea. Not that I don't still dream about having that as an alternate career, but. (laughs) That's our second chapter, right? (laughs) So the job was in 
a related field to Arctic studies? It was in like in environmental consulting in Vancouver, but working globally and a lot in the Arctic. So very fitting for the fact that I wanted to work around the world, but that I wanted to also have, you know, I had this Arctic experience already. And it was not, I was not happy about getting that job necessarily. Everyone was congratulating me and I was like, thank you. It's very funny in hindsight, but it was such a good experience and really good to get out of academia because other than, you know, summer research jobs, I had had no, I had no idea what the real world quote you know, was, was actually like. And it was really good, especially I think in an environmental field to see that other side. If you're in academia, in the environment, you've got all the time in the world and very little money. And if you're doing environmental consulting, you've got not necessarily all the money in the world, but enough money to, you know, to do things, but very little time. And actually understanding that difference in how we work is essential and still really matters to the work that I do now. So it was a very good experience. So do tell me about the work that you do now. Now I work uh, for United Nations Environment Program, World Conservation Monitoring Center. It's the most awful mouthful. In short, UNEP WCMC, which is much better, but doesn't mean anything on its own. WCMC is a collaborative branch of UN Environment Program. Uh, we're the biodiversity and conservation arm, really, of UNEP. Um, and ha it happens to be based in Cambridge, not in Nairobi, where UNEP head headquarters are. So I'm head of the science program there, doing basically global conservation science and research together with there's about 130 of us that work at the center. Can you kind of drill down to a piece of that work that is particularly like meaningful to you or that you spent a good deal of your time on or you've helped shepherd along that you just want to share? There's a number of different avenues. I guess we work really broadly. So that's one thing that I struggle with. I think I've never wanted to be pigeonholed. And that's also one reason why I was always a bit wary of academia and, and PhDs although I did one in the end, because I just didn't want to focus and focus and focus and focus and end up in some tiny realm. And I wanted to stay broad, which is definitely what I've achieved. It has its challenges because, you know, sort of jack of all trades and master of none. But that that is certainly my choice. So in terms of answering that, I would say I have to give a couple of threads. I mean, typically when people think of conservation or, or ecology, it's often about, oh, well, you count animals or you count species or trees. And it's obviously much, much more than that, especially these days where it is incredibly complex and you do involve, you know, modeling and mapping, whether it's spatial or just statistical. So we, we do a lot on the on that front. And obviously, I think, you know, as the world has progressed in, in certain ways, we've realized the interconnectedness of, of nature and people and the economy and everything. So I think the projects that sort of bridge that gap are really critical. So one of the ones I would mention is we, we do some work with UNDP and we're trying to sort of expand the work we do in this realm, but it's it's sort of poverty, environment and well-being. So even though I'm a conservation biologist, we also kind of come into this. So looking at, you know, typically when you measure poverty or when we have measured poverty, it's been about education and health, but the environment hasn't factored into it, especially when you've got sort of quantitative measures. So there's a lot of work being done other places as well on this. It's not certainly not just us, but actually trying to, on a national level, engage governments to look at what types of environmental indicators you could include in poverty indices to actually have that as part of it, because it's so important if you don't have access to fresh water, if you don't have access to, to forest ecosystems for, for your wood or for your food, if you don't have, a, I mean, all these things, the environment is absolutely critical and you cannot assess poverty and how to get the world out of poverty without that. So I think that's one really important thread that we've been doing. 
other work kind of more general but we do a lot of work with obviously protected areas so national parks also community and indigenous conserved areas all this kind of thing and looking at if you invest in these areas what are the, actually the benefits and obviously the obvious things would be to increase the number of endangered species or to improve the habitat for the species that live there that those are clearly targets but you know, again, you're also thinking about other things. You're thinking about improving the communities that live in or around those areas and improving their education or their health or their livelihoods. So again, I guess that's another project that sort of connected things. And then along with that is often working with protected area managers. This is another project to look at their understanding of remote sensing. So using satellite data to understand the environment and to be able to assess it and analyze it. And also ecosystem services so the kind of the value of nature for humans. Yeah. And and so again, that, that ties into forest ecosystems or freshwater or carbon stocks or all that kind of thing. So I guess a lot of those, it displays that interconnectedness, which I think is what is essential because without people really understanding the value of nature, we're not going to get anywhere in terms of protecting our environment. And that's essential for all of our future. So I guess those are the important ones. That's a very long answer, sorry. No, that's a great answer. That's, it just shows the breadth of things that you have to deal with um, yeah. kind of at the, at the level at which you are and the, you know, the head of science. Um, does that mean that that longing for adventure is maybe a little bit behind you and you don't get out in the field as much or do you still have the ability to do that? That's a really good question. Yes. Yes, I guess it's the simplest answer. The job I had before this was on Svalbard and I was station leader, station manager of the research station up there. And so when I was looking at this job, it's what I wanted and I wanted to work globally and I'd always wanted to work in this kind of environment. But that was absolutely the thing that I was quite concerned about because I've always been quite field-based and had practical aspects to my job. And this was obviously going to be office-based. I guess we have so many different projects and I'm constantly on a micro scale jumping up and down from my desk to go and talk to people and figuring things out and then coming back. And then obviously we've got you know project meetings and various meetings around the world where you really engage with governments and people and other academics or scientists. So that's been sort of the fieldwork replacement and that's made it all right, actually. I do wonder sort of if I think kind of 20 years down the road, maybe 15, I'm getting a bit old. What then? And I do have ideas that at some point I might like to switch back to working maybe for a smaller organization that is more field-based where you could have these practical aspects and you could be responsible um, for engaging in, in sort of on the ground activity. So it's still in my mind, but yes, it's certainly not what I do right now, which was a quite an unusual transition, but it's also kind of cool to see that you can go from having a very practical job where you might be disentangling a reindeer's antlers from cables on the tundra or trying to find a rare species of plant or collecting black carbon samples from a glacier to being in an office and just working on global projects. So I'm, I guess I'm very happy that I made this shift, but it was a proper shift. <laughs> I'm going to assume that in disentangling antlers on the tundra was not just a hypothetical, that that was something that you've done. So can we back up and talk about that experience and your real, real Arctic experience? Um, was And then how the PhD falls in that, like, weave me the story of okay. that period of life. Sure. So after my master's, then I worked in environmental consulting. And at that point, I did do a PhD, which was the right time. I still wasn't certain if I really needed a PhD. And that was always my big question. But I knew that if I found a topic 
I liked enough, um, it would be fine. And that's always the advice I give people. You have to love your topic because it's going to be miserable at certain points. I think that's just the nature of the beast. So I went to Cambridge, the Scott Fuller Research Institute and did my PhD there on impacts of climate change on reindeer and reindeer herders in Russia and Scandinavia. So I had two seasons of fieldwork in the Nenets region of Russia, northern Russia, living with nomadic reindeer herders. It was interesting that I've been in the wilds of the Arctic, you know, from from my environmental consulting work and from my master's, as in dropped off by helicopter in remote places with only a field assistant and nobody, you know, with a, within a 10-day walk at least around. So my PhD fieldwork was the first time I was living with people in the Arctic, um, which was an amazing experience. Incredibly difficult. They have unbelievably tough lives. Uh, I took a hand drill because I was building a vegetation analysis frame and I hadn't quite finished it. I thought, oh, I'll take extra drill pieces and it'll be useful for them. And this one was old-fashioned crank hand drills. And actually, when I got there, they were still using like wood and, and rope kind of drills to fix their sledges. And they had nothing as sophisticated as a hand drill. It's a very sort of traditional basic conditions but it was an incredible experience and so I had that and then after my PhD I, I guess I realized I did want to keep doing what I was doing for a while longer and had some postdoc funding in northern Norway and then from there got a job on Svalbard as the leader of the Norwegian Polar Institute's research station and that was the job I was responsible for all this kind of scientists and science that was passing through the research station and everything from kind of I used to say from we had this new, beautiful, architecturally lovely building with this wide sweeping staircase. So I used to describe my job as anything from sweeping the stairs to planning the future of science um, in this scientific community um, and everything in between, which, yes, included detangling uh, reindeer antlers from cables on the tundra. Wow. And so that was very real Arctic. Um, and one of those things, it was a very, uh, just a scientific community. It was like a mini globe. There were stations from... 11 different countries and then plus other people coming all to do research, whether it was on geology or marine science or ecology or atmospheric chemistry. They're all based. It's just like this globe that you shrunk into about 100 and in the summer, 150, 180 people all living together in this little old town. But life was very real. I guess it was the most unreal and real place to live. It's kind of what I used to say in that you didn't you didn't shop for yourself or you didn't have to cook for yourself. You didn't have to pay bills. Um, so very unreal in that sense. But yet what really mattered mattered is in your lives and the lives of the people up there. So, you know, you always knew where people were going for the day on their field work and, you know, when they were expected to return. If anything went wrong, you had to help. So then the things that really mattered, basically like safety and, and life really mattered. So it's a very interesting place in that sense. Uh, to be in terms of how you think about the world and environment and, and human interactions and all these sorts of things. Yeah. So then if you've had this experience of this mini globe where people are coming from all corners and interacting and you've had day after day after day of adventure, I can see where like going to the UN makes like a good next step. Was that the next step from Svalbard? Almost, yes. I, I absolutely loved the job on Svalbard. It was just like one of those things you kind of, do I actually get paid to do this? This is just amazing. Better, better than I could ever have dreamt of. And it's 
at some point they were changing the management of it and it would have been I was there sort of a few months and then a few months in mainland Norway and then a few months on Svalbard and a few months in mainland Norway and they were changing it so the position would only be on Svalbard and at that point I thought hmm, I'm not sure this is the right thing for my life and my future at that point had it been five or ten years earlier absolutely so I was then thinking hmm, what do I do next and I you know I could have transitioned into a pure research position but having done all that management of of a station and of people, I realized that's actually what I really liked. And I didn't want to be just a researcher, which is what I think I had known, which is why the job initially appealed to me. And so I thought, what else am I going to do? And I had this, again, this is one of these other moments that I mentioned earlier of this being in this vast sort of empty space of not knowing what you want to do. And I thought about everything. I thought, should I just quit everything and go off to Africa and volunteer in a game reserve and and do that for a while until I know something more should I like should I do one of these academic things and I just had these all these questions and then there was a little seed in my mind a few years prior I had seen through a Cambridge alumni newsletter this little video clip of a student who was going off she was from Kenya or Tanzania I think and she was doing a project in the Bahamas a marine sort of ecosystem conservation study and it was this master's course in Cambridge on conservation leadership so they kind of describe it as a bit like an MBA for conservationists. And I always had that seed in my mind, but I thought, oh, Fiona, you know, forget it. You've done, you've done your PhD. School is finished. It's just too late for you. And then when I was at this point of thinking, what do I want to do? Kind of the idea was just in my head and it just didn't go away. And I thought, well, it's <laughs> just totally crazy to go back to university again. And in the end, it worked out and I did apply and I did get in and I did that course. And that was absolutely the right decision. It's the most fun I have ever had studying and learning. I love my PhD as well, to be fair. But I think the thing with the master's was we were a group of 17 people from 17 different countries, all spending this you know, really intense year together. And because it's a bit like an MBA, you need to have experience beforehand. So, you know, the age of us was, I think, between 25 and 49. And everyone had years of experience in different fields of, of conservation and with different organizations and governments. And there's just so much to bring to it. Um, and it was just an incredible environment that you were thrown into. So that was totally the right thing to do because I le I learned so much. And it was after that that I, I guess made the switch to where I work now at UNEP WCMC. And that's what I had always wanted to do. I didn't want to abandon the Arctic, but I wanted to work globally. And I really think that doing that master's opened those doors for me, which is why I chose to do the crazy thing and go back to school yet again and do that. And so that, that was the transition, um, shifting from the kind of field-based to kind of UN global environment was through that course. And so now I, I'm either in the camp of, okay, I think her schooling's done and she's never going to go back, or you <laughs> definitely are going to go back to med school later, and we'll hear about that. So either way, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Fiona, your schooling might be done, um, but it sounds like you're not actually done in the classroom. What's going on with you now in terms of teaching? Right. I think, yes, this, this may have put the, the, the medical school and other school, every, any other school kind of bugged to rest. So a few years ago, one of the professors that I work with at Cambridge suggested that I apply for this fellowship, which is basically a teaching fellowship within one of the colleges. I did. I really thought nothing more of it until a few months later when I was told that I had received this fellowship and hadn't told my work about it at all yet. But luckily that all worked out and I had time to sort it. So I've been for four years now a 
fellow at Fitzwilliam College in Cambridge and have various duties, uh, one of which is teaching first year geography students and giving occasional lectures to second or third years or master students as well. I absolutely love it. It was terrifying to start with. Thought, how on earth can I possibly teach these kids? Like, what, what do I know when that? But I absolutely, I really love it. And it's, you know, a few years into it now, it's, you know, I've kind of settled in and I really value that different kind of role. So I do it on the side of my job, which is a bit of a challenge, but it's really worth having this kind of two different, really two different roles. And obviously been working, working on the global stage, but then also having this not, I guess, on the ground, but in an educational sense, and actually having the chance to, you know, work with these, you know, 17, 18 year olds, like we were in, you know, first year Dartmouth, and actually being able to, to work with them and see their ideas. And they are amazing. I mean, they're so much, I think, better than I ever was and more informed and more aware. And so I have various roles, but I, yeah, I do a lot of teaching for them. And it's really, I guess, exciting and rewarding to see what can happen. And one of them right now, one I taught two years ago has an internship with us, which is really exciting. The the students going into their third year have just chosen their dissertation topics. And I'm so pleased because four out of the eight that I teach are all working on um, environmental conservation and climate kind of sciences. So that's kind of what I do on the side. It's a really nice thing to do. Maybe that's the bigger question for the future, <laughs> which, which direction I'll actually take. Good. Well, that's exciting. And it gives you a little hope when you see kind of a next generation Absolutely. taking on the mantle. of They're your, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I also feel very sorry for them. I think they have a much more difficult world than we had. And I, one of my students said that, you know, they, they do human, it's a bit like Dartmouth geography, actually, you do human and physical, which I think is great. And, that, you know, one of my students said, you know, is it ever going to get less depressing than it is right now? We're studying migration and, you know, global economies on one in one class, and we're studying climate, you know, in our other module. And with you, we're looking at the cryosphere and everything melting. Is it ever going to get easier? And, you know, he sort of phrased it in a joking way. And I said, you're absolutely right. It's really hard. It, and it is really difficult. I think being that age now, you are confronted with so much more than, than we were. You know, I think you're learning about the issues you need to learn about, but very much with gigantic real world application in a different way. So there's, I think there's extra challenges there when it comes to learning and teaching and, and doing what we do. Well, with all these challenges, we can have a lot of impact. So maybe that's the way to look at the bright side, right? Absolutely. Definitely. And the younger generation, I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of hope and determination there. So that's all. Yeah, really positive. Thinking back to that college Fiona who knew she didn't want to get pigeonholed, knew she wanted adventure, but really was in that vast, I could do anything, so it's really hard to pick anything mindset. What might you have told her, knowing what you know now, that could have made, I don't know, something different or easier? Or what, what reflections could you give her? I would say some things I probably did right without knowing. And so I think it's worth saying that. And one of those things would be to follow up with connections of people that you meet, because it's often these random things that make your future, like meeting, you know, David Klein, this professor that I met at Dartmouth, and then did my master's, and that changed my whole next you know, 20 years or more. So do pay attention to those to those connections. And if you meet someone who has ideas or is good to talk with or who is encouraging or supports you, 
those things are really important. So of course, you can you can apply to things out of the blue, and you know you can get them. Absolutely, we all have to do that as well. But actually, paying attention to those um, occurrences and random incidences, I think, is really important, and building on those. And then the other thing, I suppose, don't don't be so don't be so hard on yourself, or don't strive for such utter perfection. Because I think you can work hard and be determined and, you know, and be really good. And that's enough. And you can still find opportunities and create a path for yourself without, yeah, needing to be just right and just perfect. So be a bit more accepting, I suppose, of what you do, what you can do and what you what your achievements actually are and what your ideas are. Well, Fiona, I think you have curated an amazing path, one that, of course, you couldn't have envisioned, but it really has seemed to follow a lot of the things that you value, our intertwined life here on this planet and what's so important, but also a sense of adventure and a sense of deep thinking. I just, I think you've really found your place. And so I can't wait to see what happens in the next chapter for you, adventure on a small scale or large. Um, But thanks for talking to us today. Thank you, Leslie. That was Fiona Danks, head of the science program at the United Nations Environment Program World Conservation Monitoring Center, where she helps to develop tools and processes to aid decision makers in understanding how to account for the value of biodiversity in policymaking for development and the environment. Find out more about her program's work at unep-wcmc.org. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, at roadstakenshow.com and on the next Roads Taken.